Okay, so hello and welcome back to Rupture Radio. This week we have a special roundtable discussion and debate um, featuring uh, an, a, a series of articles that was in the, the current edition of Rupture um, with authors John Barry and Diana O'Dwyer, um, John from the Just Transition Greens and Diana from uh, Roy's, um, just debating the question of should we ally with green capitalists? Uh, um, uh, this is a debate that was sparked by comments from John on the on the trademark podcast there a few months back, where he said that uh, we have to uh, seriously consider which parts of green capital do we make alliances with? Because I don't think I see the social forces being arranged that we can simply wash our hands of that messy engagement. Uh, and in Rupture Radio, we thought that that was genuinely an important debate to be had. Uh, um, we have a, a very limited amount of time to prevent ecological crisis and uh, we're already in ecological crisis. We have a limited amount of time to prevent catastrophe. Uh, um, so we should leave no stone unturned in trying to fight it. But we also have uh, uh, not enough time for strategic dead ends, uh, which waste our, our limited time and energy. So we thought that it would be an important discussion and debate to, to, be, to have. Um, but before we get into it, John, uh, um, your first time, welcome on to, to Rupture Radio. Uh, uh, maybe you could give us a little bit of your, your background as to uh, uh, how you came to be writing about all of this stuff. That's great, Kane. Yes, I think I, I put the round into the round table. Given under lockdown, I won't have to socially distance by two metres. I'll be that size already, like a lot of us at the end of this. So I'm a recovering politician. I was a Green Party councillor up here in the north, in North Down, for seven years. Uh, former Workers' Party member going back to the 1980s, then fell in with the Greens. Still falling in and out with them, given what they're doing down in Dublin. Um, but that's my political uh, background. So I've been a long time political activist in the kind of red green space, you know, the kind of watermelon green position. Um, but my day job is I'm a professor of green political economy up here in Queen's University, Belfast, and I research just transition, uh, the, the democratization of work, social movements, and uh, the ideology of growth uh, are my main areas of interest. And Diana, obviously people will have heard your voice on the podcast before, but I don't think we've ever really, like what's your own background? How did you get into involved in RISE and into uh, uh, eco-socialist politics yourself? Um, well, I've been a member with RISE um, since it was launched um, there about a year and a half ago now. And um, before that, um, I was an activist in the Socialist Party since like 2007. So I've been knocking around socialism and eco-socialism for about 14 years now, I suppose. Um, and I'm very interested in researching more on eco-socialism as an area of like I've read like a fair bit on um, in the last couple of years, particularly because um, years and years ago, before I ever became a socialist, I was primarily into green politics. And then I kind of went more into socialism. And now I'm finally managing to kind of marry the two together more so, um, which is really um, exciting for me as well. Um, OK, well, I, that's sort of the, who we are. Uh, maybe we jump right into it. Um, so hopefully you've, you've obviously gotten to read, wrote your own articles and gotten to read the, the other articles. Um, and this is sort of a space for discussion, debate. Maybe there'll be some differences. Maybe we'll bring things together. But, but one, reading the two of them, one thing that struck me um, is that even right off the bat, so the question of should we ally with green capitalists, um, that there seems to be a difference there a bit as to whether green capitalists even exist. Uh, um, so uh, uh, like, uh, but maybe 
John, I don't know what you thought of. Like Diana in her article put the argument that um, part of the problem is that green capital either doesn't exist or is too small to stop climate change. The same hedge funds, finance capital, and wealthy individuals that drive investment in fossil fuels and all the other un- unsustainable capitalist practices wrecking our, our, our planet. Um, under financialized late capitalism, stocks are held for an average of 22 seconds before being traded. So she sort of argued that actually there isn't like one section over here of green capitalists that you can separate off from the rest of the capitalist class. Um, but what, what would be your response to that? Or what do you think? What do you mean when you talk about like green capital? Well, I mean, as we all know, capital is not a homogenous uh, block. There are differences, you know, particularly financial capital, manufacturing capital. So the interests of capital are never the same. That's why, you know, the state is there to organize their interests. So I do think there is an emerging element of green capital. Um, but it needs to be really clear that what I'm not arguing for is some sort of um, grand alliance between eco-socialists and elements of green progressive capital. I'm posing the strategic question is to, for us to decide, and we can, also, we can always decide, we don't want to go for this, under what conditions would it be possible for very temporary, small-scale, localised, context-specific um, um, alliance, alliance probably too strong a word, but maybe non-resistance uh, or indeed even support for a local community. That, for example, my archetypal example would be if it's possible for a deprived rural community um, to get um, cheap or free electricity by an agreement with an element of green uh, renewable energy. Do we as eco-socialists say, no, we can't be touching them with a barge pole? And the reasons are that this will compromise, you know, the eco-socialist project. And as many of us know, involved in day-to-day politics, explaining this to working people, often that comes across as very abstract for them, when actually you could deliver real benefit for that local community just in that context. This is not about making some sort of, then, oh, we must do this everywhere and anywhere. I was simply proposing that I do not see at this moment the the social forces out there at the moment um, that we can't now start looking at different ways of organising. But I think all of us on this call are in agreement about the transcending of capitalism eventually. I'm just proposing that 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 older perhaps model, that theory of change that many of us would have had from a classic Marxist perspective, Is that now an accurate guide to the 21st century uh, terrain of struggle? And I'm just proposing that, yes, I think in general it is, but we still have these opportunities whereby, just to finish, and I'll let uh, Diane back in, you could even say strategically that making these temporary alliances or non-resistance, shall we say, it doesn't have to be an active um, alliance, uh, with a green capital, and then seeing a collapse could itself also be an educative function to show to people, listen, look, you know, here's an example where we tried to, you know, be nice to green capital and they fucked it up. And therefore it shows us the, you know, that that, that the standard kind of opposition to capital is the case. Because to me, I don't see what is the the real difference between um, eco-socialists entering into the doll or parliament which is a part of the capitalist system. So we're willing to, are we making alliances? Is that a strategic decision that we've made. So I'm proposing that there's an equivalence, and of course people would disagree, that if we enter into bourgeois politics and we're trying to use that format to you know, promote our uh, you know, revolutionary transformatory 
propose. What is the difference then in my proposing as examples of uh, judging the facts on the ground that we can make a decision uh, on the basis of is this going to benefit working people in that area? Is it going to be too much of a cost in terms of a larger struggle? So again, uh, just to finish, and this is my second time finishing course, um, is, is to say that I don't think there's, there's that much of a difference in terms of our eventual direction. These are just strategic differences that we may uh, be able to tease out. What, what's your good feeling on that? Like that, the core of that argument there, as I took it, and about like, what about achieving localised wins um, by non-aggression pacts with like you know, wind farm companies or the like? Um, and that, like some small localized wins like that, could 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 raise people's sights even, or could could strengthen, could prove that like we're able to deliver the goods. You know, what what's your what's your take on that, Diana? Um, well, I suppose I think the key thing for me is that like um, in trying to get towards eco socialist change, you're trying to build class consciousness. Um, and your strategy for winning reforms is to win reforms that build class consciousness as well as bring material gains for people. Um, and the trouble is, like, say, for example, if you're fighting for an increase in the minimum wage, like that's not like a massive reform, but it's something that can increase class consciousness. It's something that benefits the working class at the expense of the capitalist class. But if you're talking about something like getting people to buy into kind of share ownership as part of a capitalist enterprise, then you may be doing something that's kind of undermining class consciousness and is making people buy into more of a logic of green capitalism themselves. Um, And like as quite small Marxist forces at the moment, like you have to pick your battles. Um, So you choose what are the best issues to fight on. You don't have to kind of involve yourself in every single little battle on every issue either. So you're choosing things that are going to heighten class consciousness or going to win um, real material gains for people um, in a way that fits into your overall project of moving towards eco-socialism. So those are the type of reforms that you want to win. And therefore, who you ally with and the kind of coalitions you get involved in, you're choosing on that basis as well. So it's kind of always having the longer term goal in mind, which doesn't mean that you forgo short term gains. Like, I don't agree with posing those two things in opposition to each other, but that the type of short term gains that you organize for um, should be ones that support your long term goal rather than undermine it. Um, I suppose you could draw an analogy with um, supporting the Greens going into coalition with Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, that you might be able to win some short-term um, environmental gains, but are you totally discrediting the whole environmental movement in Ireland by doing so uh, You know, among the broader working class because this is a government that's going to implement anti-working class policies in other areas, might you know, reduce cl- um, carbon emissions over the next few years of the government, but in the long term, is it going to um, undermine support for more radical eco-socialist eco- change? I would say probably yes. Um, so it's that sort of a perspective, I suppose. Um, and just on the, the green capitalist question, like if you can separate off one section of green capital from the rest of the capitalist class, like I kind of think in practice you can't because um, a lot of, like as I said in the article, like a lot of, um, you know, the big investors in kind of green areas 
are themselves, you know, oil companies, fossil fuel companies or pet funds that invest in oil things. Um, so there just isn't that actual real separation in think, between different wings of capital. And although in relation to in particular situations, capitalists can have competing interests, it's not the same as having conflicting interests in class sense. So I suppose that like to kind of illustrate, you could say that like, you know, capitalists compete in a market, but they all share an interest in there being a market. Maybe I'll just come back because this is a really interesting question in terms of, on the one hand, just on the question of the Greens going to the government. And I think that's a good political equivalent to this issue of economically compromises because even you know as i say entering into bourgeois politics never mind entering into coalition government formation that is a compromise of sorts uh, in terms of using tools that are available my own view and i was implacably against the green party going into government because you could see what's going to happen a kind of an austerity ecology agenda is now uh, emerging and that actually what the Greens should have done is use their 12 TDs and the increase in support to embolden its activist base in communities and to build alliances locally. In other words, use um, whatever um, resources that are available to the party now with these extra seats. Of course, that was not the position the party leadership went down. But there's an example of how um, compromise with bourgeois politics could have delivered something better. But I agree with Diana. What we may see in the coming uh, months is uh, a gilet jaune type reaction, particularly as we come out of COVID and street politics can be engaged in again. I would not be surprised and I, I would be supportive if we see a carbon tax as somehow the signal, you know, policies that that's going to implement decarbonisation. But I do think I would defend that there are material differences between sections of uh, particularly energy capital, um, that may open the possibility, again, the possibility, I'm not saying there's any, you know, just because it, it, there's a, a division perhaps within elements of uh, energy capital, you say fossil fuel interests. And I, I think there are potential material differences between the uh, fossil fuel capital interests and aspects of renewable energy uh, interests. Now, ideally, it's either state or community-owned renewable energy that I would want. And all we're talking about here is a kind of a politics of the second best. And I should have probably said that all my um, musings on these topics are not just informed by Marx, but also by Machiavelli in terms of not allowing the perfect to become the enemy of the good. So it's a difference of um, you know perspective on these things. But for example, if a uh, an emboldened eco-socialist green uh, movement uh, was pushing for, uh, for example, divestment from fossil fuels, pushing for aggressive decarbonisation. Well, that's in the interest of elements of, of green capital. And again, can we not see that there's a possibility that there may be op op opportunities for divisions to use the emerging green capital interests to challenge fossil fuel interests because it's in their material interest. Yes, of course, it left to itself. It's simply what, what I would call biofueling the Hummer. In, in other words, if you just switch from somehow having fossil fuel energy and we're going to have renewable uh, energy, but still the system continues, that's what none of us on this call or I presume listening to this podcast are interested in. But I still think that we may be denying ourselves strategic opportunities by not seeing other ways in which we can identify and exploit and see, can we get 
renewable energy interests to challenge fossil fuel interests, which can save on our own resources, limited as they are, from doing that as well. So there is one uh, example, perhaps, um, of this. So, Because I do think that, yes, there are fossil fuel companies that are investing in renewable energy. It's a tiny part of their portfolio. If you look at the island of Ireland and you see, you know, com- or, uh, umbrella bodies like the Renewable Energy Association and so on, they are uh, against BP and Exxon and so on. Well, can we not use that in some way, even if it's just rhetorically um, talking about the divisions that exist uh, on, on, in, in the energy space, while, of course, accepting, as I mentioned before, that ideally we are looking for a planned state or local state and community-based system of energy democracy. I suppose I'm, again, back to a bit of a broken record, just saying, are, are we not um, you know, um, removing options for ourselves by you know, uh, presumptively just saying, we're not going to engage in anything like this, um, which could actually deny us some strategic wins? What do you make of that, Diana? So what about like the specific context of is there not green capital in terms of renewable energy? Um, like I'm just dubious really that any shift to renewable energy under capitalism could be fast enough to stave off climate disaster, um, you know, of going way above one and a half degrees. Um, I mean, it's over the last number of decades, there's been all of this talk about renewable energy um, and shifting towards it. And yet still now it's less than 2% um, of world energy comes from wind and solar. Um, So I think, you know, the socialist movement and eco-socialist activists switching switching wholesale to a strategy of supporting renewable energy capital, um, I don't think would make a significant difference to that anyway, just in in like really kind of practical, pragmatic terms, um, because it's so dominated by the fossil fuel industry and the powerful interests of the fossil fuel industry. Um, even if there wasn't the broader question of that, you know, undermining the struggle for socialism in general by undermining the development of um, working class consciousness and of the consciousness of how our interests are opposed to those of, of capital in general, including renewable capital. Because I think the amount of change that you would need is so huge that you would need um, organised, democratic, um, global planning of the economy which you just can't do under capitalism. You know, for that, you need to actually have a transition to socialism and democratic planning of the economy. Um, so it's just that the changes needed are so big in such a short time frame that um, the strategy, I think, of allying with renewable energy would be just too slow, like um, just as a kind of pragmatic objection. But you know, I was just going to say that, you know, Diana makes a, a good point globally, but then if we look at more local examples, like in Northern Ireland, we've achieved half of our electricity is from renewable energy. It's even greater in Denmark. So the, it is the unevenness. And of course, none of those achievements has to do with the fact that eco-socialists have allied with, uh, you know, fossil fuel, or sorry, non-fossil fuel capital and so on. Uh, and the point about the democratic organisation of what I would say where we need to go with is energy democracy. But I suppose what I'm proposing is to, and I think you had him on the podcast here, Andreas Mann, How to Blow Up a Pipeline. Is it possible to have a very uh, aggressive anti-fossil fuel movement, you know, up to and including, and I know it's controversial within the climate justice movement about, well, is it morally and politically justifiable to use violence against inanimate objects like infrastructure and so on, given the scale of the crisis that we're facing, while also 
where uh, where possible. And again, I'm only at, at the level of kind of hypothetically proposing that there may be opportunities. It's just that I, I think we may be in danger of this perfect becoming the enemy to good. Could you be having a uh, could you have a policy of taking on fossil fuel capital? Direct, true direct action and what Mam is proposing. I have to say, there's a lot of logic behind what he has to say, while also then having this more softer, uh, more inclusive. Oh, look, we're trying to deal, we're trying to be nice to fossil, oh, sorry, um, you know, renewable energy and so on. But at the same time, we're being really tough against fossil fuel. That'd be, it's almost like a, a comedy, you know, ballot box on one hand, Armalite in the other kind of version of a strategy, which may be completely incoherent. And I'm quite happy to, you know, uh, say that or have people say that that it is. But it's it's that sense that I again I just think that we're we're not in the same position as we were in the post-war period in terms of class forces. We're going to have to engage in alliance building with all sorts of, I think, very strange perhaps bedfellows. I'll give you another example. Given that there are a lot of Christians who would accept that uh, with the, 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 the climate crisis, the Pope has written Laudato Si, I could see there are potential alliances there within elements of progressive green Catholicism. Now, does that mean that because of the horrendous record of the church and a whole range of issues, we as eco-socialists say, that's it, we're not going to deal with any progressive element of the Catholic Church? Um, so, it, it, so it's not just about um, capital, but where are the other potential alliances or the trade union movement, Not you know, which isn't often always progressive. But I suppose for me, uh, rather than saying we have a homogenous um, working class that's available there to be mobilised, we're in a much more fractured state. Um, you know, the progressive social forces that were there even 10, 15 years ago, now they're reasserting themselves. So for me, it's about um, saying that the theory of change now in the 21st century is not as simple as a vanguard party leading a, a working class. And I don't actually think that's what Diane or anyone, uh, you know, the argument is being made. So it is about what types of alliances and under what conditions do we make those alliances? And that's where Diana and, and myself are in complete agreement. Well, I think like part of it is, you know, what you see the root of the problem ultimately is being, you know, and if you see the root of the problem as being capitalism and and the capitalist class, um, then that points you in the direction of building alliances with um, anyone who's marginalised, oppressed, exploited by capital, um, rather than allying with capital, like, you know, to put it at, at quite a kind of a, a basic level, um, you know, you don't ally with the root cause of, of the problem that, that you're, try, you're trying to address. <laughs> but, but, but just on that issue, because it's always been of interest and intrigue of me, when we talk about capitalism and capital, you know, for example, if we have a family-owned renewable energy company in the west of Ireland, yes, it's privatised, it's a for-profit and so on. Are we saying that that is to be lumped in with a large conglomerate like SSE Electricity or, or Exxon Mobil? And I suppose that's where it, kind of some of the backstory to my own thinking is to see, well, should we not again be disaggregating what we mean? Because again, I'm partly thinking of somebody who 
like yourself, Holly, of rap doors and talking even to working class people, the evils of capitalism, their eyes glaze over. You come across as somebody who's speaking down to people in an abstract term. They just don't get what they mean by capitalism. And I think it's about trying to disaggregate it, uh, perhaps. What I, I absolutely think we're, when we think when we talk about capitalism and the reasons why we're so implacably against it, it is that large multinational corporate uh, domination of our economy, which is, of course, been hyper um, speeded along under neoliberalism. But are we saying that we're also then lumping in, as I say, these potential small scale, but still for profit, um, you know, um, types of green capital business? Are we trying to say that they're, they're all the same, so we should be equally against them, whereas they should be not be directing our attention rather to the state and corporate interests that are presiding over these much larger uh, forms of ecological degradation. So again, it's partly from reasons of my own experience of practical politics that these large terms of capital, capitalism, mean very little to ordinary working class people. And if you were to tell somebody, no, we're not going to engage in this potential, maybe, you know, um, couple of years benefit for you because of the greater cause and struggle, I, I, you know, you can see you, you, you can lose people. Now, I'm not saying that sometimes that's the decision you have to make and say, listen, this short term benefit isn't worth the candle in the same way that I absolutely uh, think that history will look back on the Greens and say what a strategic disaster they made by going into government with two right wing parties when they had the opportunity to do something a lot more radical and, and transformative uh, and so on. But again, it's just that 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 issue. I've always been intrigued when we talk about capital. What, what does it mean? I, I think it's mostly corporations and states and allies with corporations and not necessarily about these smaller scale localized forms of still for profit enterprises. Yeah, I mean, when I'm talking about capital, I'm talking about, you know, big companies with like hundreds of employees, you know, um, I think any kind of popular movement in which is that is anti-capitalist would have to involve alliances between workers and small business people. Um, so to that extent, if you're talking about really small local projects, like as long as they are really small, but the thing is, if they are really small, then you can't scale them up to the degree that you need to abolish fossil fuel capitalism and to totally shift towards renewable energy. So either way, I think, you know, it doesn't work um, as a strategy of um, getting to net zero carbon emissions. Like either the capital is too small, that's not really capital and you're not really talking about allying with capital or it's too big and you are talking about allying with capital and then you're kind of undermining yourself in terms of building an anti-capitalist um, movement. Well, and I also think we need to um, critically interrogate net zero as, as a target. I mean, for those of you who don't, no, net zero is essentially a way uh, of buying carbon indulgences. It means uh, something you mentioned, Diana, you know, these absolutely science fiction um, types of technologies of geoengineering. What we should be going for is absolute zero. Uh, and the problem with a lot of the current policies around net zero is that it's not saying we need to remove and decarbonize our economies completely. We can still have carbon energy, but now we're going to offset them through things like uh, reforestation and, and carbon capture and uh, sequestration. And so I'm really, I, I think a much more radical proposal 
is about getting to absolute zero. Um, and there is a danger that net zero, uh, as I say, becomes a get out of jail free car to, to enable the continuation of fossil energy, but then offsetting it uh, in some. And that actually has been the Irish government's strategy for quite some time about uh, willingness to buy carbon offsets to, you know, deflect from aggressively reducing capital. Just to go back to one of the things that Diana argued in her article, John, to put it to you, was it's kind of on the same point as in favour of United Fronts, saying that, and in saying that in the United Front struggles, of course, there could be small business people and you know middle class layers would be involved, and uh, um, especially in the climate change movement, that has been a, a feature. But uh, she was arguing that within that, like United Front, the role of socialists is to like that, that, that more middle class leadership will often give it a more conservative direction uh, um, and that the role of socialists is try to fight for like working class uh, movement and socialist ideas to to lead uh, those so not not ruling out uh, 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 not ruling out like participation in cross class movements but saying that within that we need to not lower the banner lower the demands uh, lower what you're saying in order to appease green capital or or green biz- small businesses or whatever um, and like her argument was that that there's a a danger that like a, such aligning a with green capital would in practice mean subordinating the needs and interests of working class people and ceding leadership to the one percent who represent the system, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But what's your response to that argument? Uh, um, that it's no, not. A, I think it's Diana is absolutely correct. I mean, you know, this is not about to make a carte to get blanche rich on board, uh, right? uh, view that this is going to. Uh, be a, a you know dogmatic policy or it has to be part of how we as eco-socialists you know are, articulate our our strategy i mean the problem with the green movement at the moment is that it's just full of the guilty educated urban middle classes for the most part and certainly none more so than we see in the irish green party now down south the party up north here is a lot more to the left than the party down south which is probably the only reason why i've not left uh the greens to be honest um but it, it is absolutely to show that for example the, the 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 model of solving the climate crisis being rolled out and what you described there keen is a kind of oh electric cars solar panels on houses and bicycles for everybody Well, that's great if you're a South Dublin, you know, professional and you can afford, uh, you know, to install solar panels and electric cars. And of course, let's not be under any illusion. There's a horrendous supply chain and human rights abuses associated with the production of cadmium zinc and the batteries that are needed for um, electric vehicles. And that really what we should be arguing for here is a working class environmentalism and environmentalism of the poor. Um, and we can see that very clearly, not so much in the, the global north, although it is growing because often green policy is seen as middle class. It's seen as something that only the rich have to be. It's a privileged position. In the global south, environmentalism has a much stronger resistance because it's people's material lives being impacted um, in a way. So for me, it's about how do we develop a working class environmentalism? I think we're all agreed 
with that. I think these issues of, of you know, alliances, uh, strategic removal of our struggle against green capital are, can be distractions. They're, you know, they're necessary, in my view, to be included in the mix. But really, what we need to do is to show people that actually issues of the planetary emergency are not something that's happening far away or that's going to be happening in the future. They are happening here and now, and they're going to impact mostly on, on the poor, as they already are um, around the world. So it's really how do we begin to build up that narrative of a, of a working class environmentalism? And for me, it is around saying that things like public transportation, um, you know, affordable, uh, clean, green energy, you know, community based projects of, of essentially energy democracy and effect effectively moving towards the democratization of the energy means of production. That's the new terrain in which we need to um, to get to. And all my musings in the article as well, can strategic stops along the way to consider, well, could this help in that longer cause? And I think we all agree, as Diane pointed out, if we look at it and say, well, you know, maybe we could make a, you know, a campaign with elements of green uh, energy in Ireland because they want to decarbonize and they want to divest and, and they're going to put pressure on the Northern Irish state or the Irish state to you know divest from fossil fuels. That's worth looking at. But we may decide actually, you know, on a bigger scale of things, this would only embolden a corporate greening of our energy system. And actually what we need to be moving towards is a democratization of our energy system. Um, and I don't think there's any um, necessary contradiction between considering these issues, thrashing them out as we are now, but then saying, you know, we looked at it and it's not for us. Uh, all I'm saying is that there may be conditions and it's for us then to identify on the ground what are the conditions under which that it might be strategically a, a stepping stone in the right direction. What do you make of that, Diana? Is it a possible stepping stone? And the other idea that maybe to move it on as well is um, John in his article talked made the analogy with the abolition of slavery um, that like there was when ca the capitalist class did concede to the abolition of slavery, which robbed them of billions of euros worth of supposed property uh, um, and like had a real impact on on, on their uh, um, their profits and their uh, how, how well off they were. And is there a possible um, stepping post or, or that we could have there of also like abolishing fossil capitalism, fossil fuel capitalism. Uh, um, uh, uh, so I don't know, what do you think on, on those of possible staging posts between here and the ultimate goal? Um, well, just on the renewable energy capital and then allying with them to kind of put pressure against um, fossil fuels. Um, see, just an example that came to my mind when you were talking about that was like the whole question of data centres at the moment in Ireland and um, that's going to massively increase the demand for electricity in Ireland um, over the next couple of decades because all of these big multinationals like Amazon and Google and wherever are putting their, their data centres in Ireland and like part of the justification for that um, or to legitimise that and make it seem okay from an environmental point of view is that they're supposed to build you know renewable energy generation that will supply the electricity for the data centers but at the same time they also have to have backup supplies of fossil fuels so you know it's not always the case that it's that straightforward that like strengthening renewable energy undermines um, fossil fuels 
Um, and also, you know, any fossil, any renewable energy company can go and invest in fossil fuels, can go and do other, you know, very damaging exploitative practices. Um, like so I was saying in the article, you know, you can have a, a company that's superficially green, um, but it can be exploiting, you know, the workforce. Um, it well will be exploiting its workforce because that's the nature of capitalism is to exploit workers. Um, so you're going to be, you know, allying with the devil, whatever way, you know, no matter how green your green capital is, it's still going to have all of those other negative features of, of capitalism. Um, and as I said, it's not kind of separate. And just on the, the issue of, um, that you could abolish fossil fuels under capitalism, like slavery. I think it depends on like how you interpret historically, like why slavery was abolished. And I think part of the reason was that um, wage labor is more suited to capitalism as a mode of production than slavery was. Like there's a lot of different arguments about this, um, but that wage labor is more efficient than slave labor. So it wasn't simply that there was like a big international campaign about it um, or that, you know, um, that there was a big movement to abolish slavery, but it was also that um, it was kind of in the broader systemic interests of capitalism. Um, and I think the situation with fossil fuels is kind of different. I don't know, I was reading um, Andreas Malm's book, Fossil Capital, there recently. And like he really makes a very convincing argument um, about how just totally bound up fossil fuels are with the development of capitalism in a way that slavery wasn't in an ongoing way. Like he actually links the development of wage labour and the emergence of fossil fuels as a superior fuel for capitalism over um, hydropower, which was originally being used in the cotton mills that were the kind of birthplace of industrial capitalism in England um, in the middle of the 19th century. Um, so I'd be a bit dubious in that point of view. And also the fact that the fossil fuel industry is so incredibly powerful as well, um, whereas I think probably more dominant sections of capital um, at the time were tied up with wage labour rather than with slave labour. So it kind of has to do with historical interpretation a bit there um, as well, um, I think. So I don't know. I, I, just on the, the abolition of slavery, I think you're, you're quite right, um, Diana, in terms of it being tied up with a much more complicated story. The, the dominant narrative around the abolition of slavery is that people like William Wilberforce in Britain and this kind of moral, you know, rejection of slavery was the reasons why this, it was actually the slave trade initially. So not slavery per se, it was a slave trade. That was most of the, the debate in, in the British Parliament and so on. But actually, there were also revolutions and uprisings in places in the Caribbean, in Haiti and so on, that actually slaves themselves rising up and challenging their conditions of oppression. And that's almost being written out of the official narrative. And thankfully, partly as a result of Black Lives Matter, you know, a reinterpretation of the abolition of slavery. It wasn't, you know, the white man's burden, the, the great and the good in Britain, often from a Christian perspective, you know, uh, wanting the abolition of slavery, but actually it was the Slaves themselves who took it into their own uh, control, which basically, um, you know, began that process of, you know, uh, ending ending slavery. To me, the analogy is simply at the level of scale. The same arguments that you find being used against 
100% renewable energy economy. And the same ones of a structural sort, the same that were used against those who argued against the abolition of slavery, that the, that we, the, the economy would collapse. It's absolutely crazy. It's mad. So that level of systemic change there is a, a similarity. Now, where there's a really controversial issue, and I'm, I'm not making this argument, is that I don't know whether most people don't realise that Britain had to make reparations to slave owners for lost uh, profits and income. And they only completely um, ended these reparations, I think, about 20 years ago, officially. Now, there are people who say that, well, if you want to abolish fossil fuels, you're going to have to basically compensate fossil fuel companies. And that's where I think the analogy completely breaks down. Uh, are we seriously considering that we're going to basically compensate ExxonMobil, BP and so on uh, in terms of their lost income? When the fact is that these companies now are actually presiding over planetary collapse in terms of fossil fuel being the major cause of climate breakdown. But again, I do think there is a, an analogy at the level of the structure of the economy, because that's what we're talking about in all this discussion. We're not talking about green capitalism. Like, you know, I'm not interested in the greening of capitalism, although I'm throwing out, obviously, the strategic interest in terms of whether along that road there may be possibilities of alliances. And again, not just with green capital, but what about churches, trade unions, the environmental movement and other movements that may not necessarily share all our values of an end goal. But this is the messy uh, you know, dynamics of strategy and tactics and so on. And I do think we I hope this podcast and the article exchange with Diana and I is not the end of this. I, I am absolutely not even convinced of my own argument. I just threw it out as a throwaway comment at the end of another podcast and then Kim picked up on it. But it is a, it is a good occasion to kind of think through, uh, again, a, a theory of change for eco-socialist revolutionary transformation in the 21st century that I do think requires us to question maybe an older, more simplistic view of class struggle, a vanguard party and bada bing, bada boom, we're into some sort of eco-socialist future. I don't think any of us uh, would accept that. It's a much more messy, contingent, two steps forward, one step back process. And at the end of it, just to finish, I think the most important thing we need as eco-socialists is a sense of resilience, and a sense of camaraderie, you know, debate and discussion and a willingness to tease out, you know, things that we may not have thought out before. How can we help each other? And so I do congratulate Rupture and Rise for, you know, initiating this discussion and I hope we have more of them. Yeah, on that note, I, uh, I do think time is ticking on uh, um, uh, and I, I definitely think we could go on for weeks. I have a loader <laughs> list of questions here that I didn't get to. Uh, and I know I can see Diana is bursted to try to respond to some of those things. But uh, uh, I think as he is our guest, it only makes most sense to, to give John the last word on the debate uh, um, and return to, on a future day to, for further discussion. And maybe there'll be further replies and re counter replies to the, to the written articles as well. I, I've said enough. I'm happy to let Diana have, have the last word. And I hope this is the first of a couple of podcasts on, on, on this issue. So, uh, Diana. Want to take it home, Diana? <laughs> um, well, I think definitely the strategy that I was arguing for in, in the article is not this kind of narrow idea of a vanguard party that has all the answers. It's exactly that idea of building a united front um, of all of the forces, all the different movements, environmental movements, anti-racist movements, women's movements, LGBT plus movements um, that are exploited and oppressed um, by the current system um, and finding a way of linking those concerns 
turns together um, in an anti-capitalist direction as well, um, because that is a common factor that is oppressing and exploiting people who are involved um, in these movements. Um, so definitely we're not in any way arguing for some kind of narrow trade union um, workplace only kind of struggle. Um, society is very complex. People identify their interests, you know, in relation to all different aspects of their lives. And for any movement to be powerful enough to confront the overwhelming power of capitalism, it needs to be a broad movement that will have different social forces in it. But I think the key thing is that it's united, you know, against a common enemy that's oppressing us all, which is um, that of the capitalist class and the capitalist system. Um, so that's more um, the point that I'm trying to make as being extremely central to our whole kind of strategic approach towards like whether we should ally with sections of capital or not. Okay, we shall leave it there. And I would encourage people, if they haven't already, to check out the uh, two written articles um, in the latest issue of Rupture. They're also on rupture.ie. And to check out the ABCs of Green Politics uh, podcast that John is on as well. Uh, um, and to, 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 to let us know what you think as well. So thanks a million. Thanks to John. Thanks, Diana, for, for joining us. And thanks to everybody for listening. Bit of makeup.